All those languages are instruments to express the love of God. When you love, you have all language of the world. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I have two visitors in studio today. The first is responsible for me being able to speak with the second. Bruce Young, thank you for introducing me to Father Michel Libambu. It's my pleasure to be here. As you'll see from the interview, Father Libambu is a wonderful and a generous person. And among other things, he's been kind enough to subject himself to being interviewed in English, which is, of course, not his native language. He speaks many languages, but uh, his native language is actually an African language, Lingala, and then second language is French, and then other languages beyond that. Dr. Michel W. Libambu, professor of patristics at the Catholic University of the Congo, previously academic vice president there. We'll talk a little bit about his work and some of his other achievements in just a few minutes. But I first want to say thank you. And you can be doctor, you can be professor, you're also Father Libambu. Exactly. <laughs> Tell me where you live in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Yeah, thank you much for, very much for your question, Michel Libambu. I was born in Kinshasa, in oh. DRC. And I studied, um, I was in the school primary school, secondary school uh, in Kinshasa. And I did some, I, one part of my study at a university, a Catholic university of the Congo in Kinshasa. In Kinshasa, I, find, I could find my vocation when I saw many missionaries uh, in Kinshasa to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was... Uh, uh, the start point of my vocation. And I was a consecrated priest on in year uh, 1990. How old were you when you were consecrated a priest? I was uh, 26. Hmm. <laughs> so young. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was 26 years old. And I was two years in the parish in Cathedral of Kinshasa. And four years in seminary. I was an educator in seminary. Before I go to, I went to Rome to pursue, to make my dissertations on patristics and on letters. I should probably ask, so we define patristics. Is this the study of the early church fathers and their writings? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Patristics studies... Uh, are very important for us in Africa to find our connection with our tradition. Uh, you know, we have two kinds of uh, tradition uh, in Africa when we are study, we are studying theology and philosophy. We have a, a, a Christian tradition and ancestral tradition. And uh, the patristic study is a can help us to find the possibility to remove or to change our life today, to find a way of development in Africa and especially in Congo. And that means we don't find, we are not looking exactly the 
solution, but the way of the solution, that means we need some reflection to see what is positive in the past, in the early Christianity, and what is possible to to use in our time today. And we can build our future. And the future of Africa is important. This is an investment, our preoccupation uh, daily. When you were a child, what religious influences were there in your life? Yeah, uh, that's what my, in my context, was uh, the more, there was an influence of religious life. Uh, in, first in the family, my mother was uh, very engaged in the church to do some education, religious education, to the kids of my street and of my square. In this context, I could know some example of sense of the church, and I could see some missionary missionaries in Congo. They do. They was consecrated to bring the gospel for the life of the people in Congo, and uh, that is a good example of a consecration. We have known some uh, missionaries from Belgium, from France, from sometimes U.S. I was touched to to see this experience. When you know uh, the life in Europe or in U.S., this is good to find uh, food, to find good education system of health security and when these people those people came to Africa there was to show us the light of Jesus Christ that was fun wonderful from this example I could find my vocation to be priest for the gospel when you were younger, you saw these examples, you were learning, obviously, at church. Yeah. Was there a moment or was there something that made you think, I do believe there is a God? <laughs> this is, uh, I, can, I could not say exactly when, but I remember uh, when I was in the school, there was a possibility for me to go to the seminary, small seminary. And I was not sure to decide. And so, yeah, uh, I stayed just a little at home. Why? Because I want to, I want to, to stay with my friends and to, to use football, football. But my mother said, no, this is the time for you to get to the seminary. And I put the question, what is the situation in, in seminary? There is football or no? So, yeah, you can <laughs> find possibility to, 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 <laughs> to have fo- football. And so when it is so, I can go. I was 
fanatic of <laughs> sports. Yeah. Well, was that your first religion? Yeah, yeah that was my first religion, sport. <laughs> <laughs> but you converted. Yeah. Through this way, I find the reality of my vocation. Vocation to be first good. To be good in earth and to be good for the neighbor. And there was many possibilities to be, to create a way of fraternity, brotherhood in the seminary, and to read many books in library about many saints in the church. And it was the start point to go ahead to continue my study in, in seminary. This was first the small seminary, and later that was the great seminary for philosophy study, uh, study of philosophy, and after then we have studies of theology. What is your birth language? Yeah. <laughs> it, In Congo we have, you, you have uh, four national languages, Swahili, Lingala, Kikongo, and uh, Chiluba. In Kinshasa, we uh, speak Lingala. Lingala it was the language for the army mm -hmm. and the language also for the liturgy. We can sing very well in Lingala when you heard the, the music. <laughs> this is the music in Lingala. It's wonderful. Mm. And the international music from Africa, this is the center of music Rumba in Africa, that is Kinshasa. In the school, we learned French. French was, was is the official language in Kinshasa, in the Congo. And in the school, we have also sometimes possibility to learn English. We have many times, so well, I understand you, yeah. you speak German as well. Yeah, German. So, and it's kind of you to speak to us in English. English, uh, Italian language, and mm. and so on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the, let me to ask about some international languages. How about the language of prayer? The things that make you feel connected to God. Whether it's music or prayer or or serve, you've hinted at serving people. Would you talk to me about the things that you do in your religious life that make you feel connected to God? <laughs> yeah, my opinion is different according to experience. I can say you this. We use uh, many several languages. All those languages are instrument to express the love of God. So I can say the, the best language that we need, this is the love. Mm -hmm. When you love, you have all language of, of the world. I can say when you, I say some, sometimes to my students, when I go to China, I see a poet who needs some my help. I couldn't speak Chinese language, but I can see, I can feel what this man needs. That is the language. The language of love is for all men, 
of the world. This is the all the language of the spirit, all Holy Spirit, and the language that we need. Other languages are very are important, but instrument of most principal language, love, love of God, love for the neighbor. Sounds like you're quoting the New Testament and and Paul. That yeah, whatever other exactly, gifts or, or languages exactly. there are, <laughs> that seems to be manifest in your interest for teaching. You maintain a school. Mm-hmm. Is this in a village somewhere? Yeah, in somewhere where you can see, you can first understand the situation. Actually, in Congo, we don't have many organization as a social organization system. And there is many powers in our society. And the school is in, in downtown, but in the periphery of Kinshasa, in border of Kinshasa. From my house to the school, we need 40 kilometers. You know, that's 40, 40 kilometers here. That is not too much, so much. But in Congo, that is so much. That is really a village. Village was what that means. There is no electricity, there is no pure water, there is no television, there is no radio. The people live in dark and go to bed to, to sleep at seven hours. Because, because it's dark then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. After eating... There is no possibility to relax, to be relaxed, to to have some information, the news of television. That is not acceptable in our time today. In occasion of my jubilee of consecration, twenty five years, and I decide, twenty years, I decide to do something for the poor, for the the population in Congo, and I decided to to build a, a, a school. But what wasn't it not only my own decision? First, I was a, I have a, I had a farm in this village that was for my relaxed time. But the people came to me to say, "Ah, we are need a, a school here." I just I don't know have. A possibility. I don't know. I have a house for classes for uh, school. I have only uh, something for my parks. I said, "Yeah, you see, you heard. Our children are very important than your parks." And the pigs. <laughs> yeah. The pigs. <laughs> yeah. I said, "Ah, oh, that was I'm, I, uh, a point of my conversion." Hmm. Not to live for myself, but for the community. And the community shows me the direction of the, my decision. So and I decide. As the children get an education, what will their path be? How will that change their lives? This is, uh, you, you, you know that. that is, uh, there is no way of development when we don't change our system of education. We want to give a chance to these children or those children to have possibility to become 
doctor, medicine, or nice, or to become, I don't know, a teacher. That is the possibility. Without this possibility, there is nothing, nothing that says that means no open, no hope, no way, no future. You know, this is a problem. The next school is in yeah, 10 kilometers far from my village, from my school. So they would have to walk that to far. To walk, to walk mm. for, for, for children. Three years ago, uh, three years old, that is uh, too much. Mm. And that is uh, unacceptable for, for the, the, the kids. I can say that this, uh, this was a voice of the spirit to hurt, to listen to what the, the population, the people said for me. And we are not only sort of priests to preach, but to listen to the voice of spirit, Holy Spirit today. And we, um, this is my opinion, this is my conviction. This is not possible. When I, there is no, there is no school in this area. I'm not sure that we, the government of Congo, will build a, a school in 10 years or in 20 years in the future. This is the chance for these children. And I'm, I struggle to find something, some money to, to pay the, the teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the poverty is so strong. You can imagine when we need two dollars per month, like uh, as a fees for the school. But this is very difficult to become to what to receive. Mm. Two dollars, two dollars, only two dollars for the school to pay the teacher. Where are we? This is not possible in this time. And we know that this is the contrast. The in Congo. Congo is, is a rich country. Resources. Uh, resources. Mm-hmm. Many resources. But contradiction, contrast, the people are not able to pay $2 for the school. $2 not per day, $2 per month. You can imagine that. Mm. Yeah, that is the situation. Let me ask, one, one of the causes of that, of course, has been conflict and war in the past. For religious people, one of the big questions mm. is how to forgive mm. and how to move on, especially in a situation where there's been a conflict or a war mm. or something like that. Mm. What is your experience in seeing people learning to forgive after a conflict like that? Yeah, we have our culture... Well, culture in our culture, we find some positive aspects and some negative aspects, and uh, that's why in all cultures are limited, and all cultures need the light of the gospel to show us the black point, the black point our sins, hmm. eh? and we must change. And the, the changement is the reconciliation. 
There is no way to find a democracy, to find, a, to build a, a village, a community without values, values of harmony, values of uh, reconciliation, values of peace. Peace is the name of the development. <laughs> the Pops say that says that that's a, there is no peace is the name of democracy uh, of development there is no development or without peace and the peace is not only simply the conflict situation with army but peace in our earth first with our earth that is the 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 fundament what the the basic of the education Christ is the first educator for all peoples hmm. <laughs> let me ask ask you about your field of expertise which was this early christianity in africa yeah so i was thinking who were the first christians i thought well Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to Egypt, yeah. it says, in the New Testament. Yeah. So maybe there's the first Christian. Yeah. But what happens after? Who are the first Christians after that in Africa? In Africa. Yeah, this is the situation, experience of uh, human beings. This is we have the vocation, the calling of God, but we want also to remain in our situation of sins, that is the the struggle to combat the sins, and this was the experience of Africa. That was not really easy to be Christian, but we have some sense, some example for the progress in the spirituality in Africa. But unfortunately, we have we have some problems of in the history, the trouble struggle with Islam after this time and the contact between Christianity and Islam was not good. Mm-hmm. And before the, that was it the Copts? The Coptic Christians were Copts they the Christian, first this is a history, the experience of sins, mm-hmm. uh, separation with Rome Sometimes discussion, councils, that is the problem of the church when we are not see the way what is what is essential in our faith. We are sometimes sterile discuss, discussion, theological discussion, and we are out of the way. That is the temptation of all peoples to be out our uh, uh, out of the the road, the right road of the face, and I can see when we are reading something about the African Christianity, we don't know only to see what was positive, but also what was negative, to make to have some lesson, lesson for our life today and for our future history is the mother of the life. We say that. Mm. <laughs> From your faith as a young boy mm. and admiring those uh, those fathers or the seminarians, the missionaries, mm. to where you are now, 
Hmm. Uh, we're all on a journey with our faith. And I'm wondering, what do you see differently now than you saw back then? Hmm. Yeah, this is a, a, a progress. I want to see the situation, what is essential. I'm 53 now. I have experience with studies, languages in the past, theology, and I see the experience. What is the question? What is essential in our life? When I'm, you can see, you can observe that when I make, make predication, preaching, that is not so long. Not <laughs> too long for theoretical things. Mm. I go directly to the essential. What is important today in our life uh, from this gospel? And my experience in, uh, in actually is to find what is essential in our life. What is essential? The love of God the love of my neighbor, to my neighbor. That is very important. What we do, what we are speaking, that is good, but not essential. And I see the experience by Augustine, of, by the father of the church. Yeah, we have Augustine, for instance, did not tell a G for us. Did not was not in the uni uni university to study theology, but what was important to resolve problems in the society and in the community? How far is our theology from the people? I'm very sad. So when I see when I'm in the church, I heard the preaching. A so long predication without content, without <laughs> <laughs> we are losing our time. God see that hurt, but not much, not much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think all religious people have maybe experienced that. Experience what is important. When I see to this is just for laughing, eh? you, you imagine when at the end of my life, we am doctor of theology, and when I don't go to paradise, to God, I go to the hell. Eh? And what can Satan or the demons say? You are doctor of theology. You are with me here. <laughs> what are you? What are you doing here? <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing here? Uh, uh, what is the significance of your doctorate of theology? Mm. Uh -huh. We have uh, in the history the example from Therese von Lisieux, yeah, of Lisieux. Yeah, this is a saint. Was uh, was not in the at the university, but she has written many things about love of Jesus Christ, and she is doctor of love. Doctorate of theology, that is for some persons, but doctorate of love, that is for all peoples. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm waiting for a seminary to give that degree. 
Hey, yeah. Doctor, <laughs> here's our doctor of love today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, very fine. <laughs> doctor, for love is for all peoples in the world. <laughs> Dr. Michel W. Libambu is the professor of patristics at the Catholic University of the Congo. Also, the Philosophical Priestly Seminary, you're the dean of the theological studies. But I think beyond all of that, you're earning your doctorate in love with the schools that you maintain <laughs> yeah. and, and your other work outside of that, as well as with your congregations. Father Libambu, thank you for speaking with us in good faith. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for this invitation. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear from a panel of listeners as they discuss the ideas presented by our guest. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. What is your vocation in life? Do you know what is essential to you in life? And is it really possible to communicate and understand each other with love alone? We invited a group of people to listen to our guests and then respond. Bruce Young teaches English literature at BYU, including Shakespeare, C.S. Lewis, world literature, and other topics. He loves making hot chocolate for his wife and spending time with his grandchildren. Michael Dunn is an Emmy Award-winning broadcast executive who has three children and now six grandchildren under the age of six. He's passionate about cycling and loves road biking, mountain biking, and fat biking in the winter. Andrew Maxfield is a composer and producer, avid reader, and is the father of two young boys who have been variously described as high-octane and caffeinated squirrels. Selena Lay loves to read and is an adjunct professor of teacher education. She has five children and is currently teaching the oldest to drive while teaching the youngest to keep his diaper on. Probably the first thing I should say is that I know Father Libambu. In fact, I was grateful to have the opportunity to bring him to campus here and help facilitate this interview that he had. I, I want to tell you a little bit about how I got to know him, but the first thing I want to say is that I hope you got some impression if you got nothing else from the interview, that he's a wonderful human being, just so warm. And I love his laughter. You got to hear a lot of his laughter. Just this essence of goodwill that is part of who he is. And uh, I just uh, truly love him. I got acquainted with him by email. I was applying for a Fulbright, which I did not get, <laughs> to the Catholic University of the Congo. But he was the sort of the academic vice president. And so we were emailing back and forth. And I came to love him through that sort of conversation and decided to try to bring him to Brigham Young University where he could give a couple of lectures and so on. And he, he did that. And we just did our best to take care of him while he was here. And then a couple of months later, my wife and I were in the Congo and he took wonderful care of us and uh, was just so generous. So we really feel this sort of brotherly connection. He's now, by the way, no longer in, in the Congo. He's, uh, the Vatican gave him a job, and he's now in Rome there. But uh, we continue to maintain some contact with him. Anyway, that's the story of our acquaintance. You know, it's interesting, Bruce. You said you know him. We didn't know him before this interview. But you feel like you know him immediately because of that love, that infectious laughter, and yeah. just his style. And uh, I, I find many Africans exactly like that, just immediately ingratiating to you. I don't know if you also felt that way. Sure. His laugh was jovial. He seemed like a friend. 
Well, I think his laughter said it, but he also said it out loud too, that he can, he can see and feel what a person needs in a way that transcends language barriers. And I sort of envy him that I, I need to get better at communicating through my laughter. <laughs> well, one thing I, I should say also is that Americans, I think, have a kind of a negative impression of the Congo and supposed to be a very dangerous place. We have loved our time there, and the people there just are, in general, are joyful, are peaceable, and and loving. And uh, yeah, I think you got a lot of that feeling from listening to Father Lipombu. But we should probably add, Bruce, and you've been there. It's it's amazing. They are so resilient and yeah. and so happy and lovable. As Westerners, we would say poverty-stricken. You don't know that when you're there because of that. And yet, as he alluded to, it's a really tough life. I mean. Yeah. The lack of good food, the lack of water, it is a very harsh existence. Temperatures, you know, in over 100 degrees Fahrenheit for much of the year. And yet, just a very happy people. But he, he emphasized the importance of education because without that, people get stuck and their opportunities are so limited. And uh, that's one of his, been one of his missions is to try to help people in that way. I noticed that what he said about education has been said here and has been said repeatedly. I was thinking about how our teachers need to be paid wherever they're teaching in the world. Even $2 a month. Even if it's $2 a month, right? You know, what's interesting there also is a lot of Westerners don't appreciate again in Africa like anywhere, education is the difference maker. And yet, with unemployment rates in much of sub-Saharan Africa at 40 to 60 percent, it's sort of this very vicious cycle where they're promised, go get an education and then life will change, and yet it, it doesn't. So really, it's a combination of education with those economic opportunities. And he mentioned his school, and you have to realize also that in a land in a world where government corruption and bribery is just off the charts, Westerners are trying to fund these schools, but even the DRC can't build enough schools fast enough. And so it's individuals like Father Labambu who do these amazing things. And I, I should mention other people from around the world that really are making a difference. And he, so he truly is living his faith because he literally is putting his money where his mouth is and seeing education. You know, that's one of the things that struck me was that he described responding to the feeling that he should do that as a celebration, a 20-year celebration of his own consecration. So he starts by consecrating himself as, as a vocation in his life and then looks back and says, well, to celebrate, I think I'll do yet one more, one more cool thing, one more charitable thing. And I just think about the kinds of milestones I come across in my life, anniversaries and these kinds of things. And, and, and what do I do? Well, we give gifts to each other, these things. And, and how could I celebrate a, a life milestone by choosing to give something not to myself or somebody who doesn't need it, but to the community. I found that very, very inspiring. Andrew, what you just said made me think of a couple of things. One is that I think among the themes of the interview, but also of his life, one is that he he appreciates the importance of theology, but he feels that it pales in comparison to actually living the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, putting that into practice in in daily life. And the other is turning from being centered on ourselves to being part of a community, turning from self to community. I I just want to share one way that I've resonated with that. I think like most people, I'm probably very naturally self-involved and self-centered, but uh, experiences of life, including 
marriage and family and so on have stretched me beyond myself. But I got to serve as a bishop, as Latter-day Saints call it, in my congregation for several years. Essentially, that's being a lay pastor, a lay minister. And I just felt during that time a constant concern, almost an anxiety, about everybody in the congregation. And it just was like a pulling me out of myself, uh, out of my concern for myself. And I feel like there's something just redemptive about that, about that kind of experience that we get pulled out of ourselves in concern for others. And then he talks also about how we need peace in order to have development, and that peace comes from peace in our hearts. I think also he mentioned the word reconciliation, that we have this harmony uh, with others that comes from love, which, as he puts it, is a gift that comes from, from God, that we, we learn how to love and, and speak the language of love. I was responding to his impatience for preaching without content. I think that that was approximately how he said it. I'll be 40 and not too long here. And I feel like if anything's true, one one thing that's true for me is that every day that goes by, I feel I have less and less patience for preaching without content or sort of a templated religious experience. You know, everything, everything that he was describing was describing where the rubber meets the road, that the actual locus of application of applied theology. And I loved, he kept using the word essential, kept using the word essential. And um, I know that Selena and I both speak French and it called up to mind a line from the, the book, The Little Prince. Me too. Did, it, did yeah. you think about that? Yeah. yeah. So in, in The Little Prince, the character says, uh, Voici mon secret, on ne voit bien qu'avec le cœur, l'essentiel est invisible aux yeux. Which means, here's the big secret, we don't see except with our hearts the essential is invisible to the eyes. And the way that he was talking about not seeing the essential lets us lose our way. When we don't see what's essential, we lose our way. And I I just feel like, boy, that hits me every day. When I don't spend the time or make the sort of spiritual investment in trying to see and feel the essential, the truest part, then I lose my way. You know, it's such a good point, Andrew, because what he just keeps coming back to is he's basically what I would call a two great commandment guy, right? <laughs> love yeah. God, love your neighbor. And I thought it was so interesting for being such uh, an impassioned, you could just tell just a good Christian human being that as he described his conversion, there wasn't this great epiphany moment. In fact, it was uh, he was sort of torn between his passion for football, or as we say in the West, soccer, which <laughs> so many in Africa are rabid about. And yet, He describes that he was just so touched to see missionaries who had come from Europe and the United States who he didn't know a lot about that, but he knew they had given up a lot to sort of be there. And it was interesting to me, just a a, a quick experience. Many years ago, I was in northern Africa in Mali, and we were working on a film. And the film, the premise was we took some American eye doctors who were there working with basic vision things with this village because cataracts and other issues with sight are such a problem there. And we came into this little village where literally the little children, when they saw this group of about 12 white Western males and females roll into their village, started shrieking because they had never seen a white person before and were sure that ghosts had come to inhabit the village. But we came and, and performed this, this uh, essential medical care, and we documented it for a documentary film we were working on. And as we left, the head of the village, 
this wonderful man uh, dressed in traditional garb in, in this village, literally with you know no economic development, had gathered up about eight little guinea fowl, little hens, which represented probably 90% of the GDP of this little village, and had them in a cage and presented them to these doctors and just simply said, through a translator, we know this doesn't mean much to you because we know you come from a land of much abundance, but for what you've done for us, we must give, and we give with our heart, and we give our all, and so we want you to take these chickens. It's so typical of the Africans and, and what I heard you know, from Father Libambu just about the way the Africans are so touched. No, they haven't been to the capitals of, of Europe or, or North America, but they know that there are other people living their faith, living their religion, being two commandment people as well by coming and, and, and sharing. He just seems so um, appreciative and, and touched by that. And that to me seemed to be the real genesis of his faith as he began to see the goodness that can come about as a result of just good Christians doing good things for each other. You know, that struck me also is he, Steve was fishing around for a specific conversion story and Father Limambu pushed back a little bit and he said, no, I, I saw good examples that shared light with me and I wanted to be good to be good and to be good well that tra- you can't be good sort of in isolation i think be good translates if it's going to translate at all into those two commandments and i, I feel like that just was relevant to all of us andrew i was thinking that fatherly bamboo not being able to pin down a moment where oh yes and now i believe in god sent me reflecting too because i always have felt like i gradually knew until I just knew. And I do have moments that mark that are special to me. But one of the things I thought about, one of the special moments to me happened when I was 16. And I was speaking with one of my one of my church leaders about what I wanted to do with my life and, and where I wanted to go. My parents were teachers, so I could picture myself being a teacher. So we talked about that. That was one of the things we talked about. And he said to me, whatever you do, be a teacher. And whatever you do, teach like the Savior Jesus Christ, because he was the master teacher. I've gone back to that many times in my life. And yes, I was a public school teacher. And and yes, I'm an adjunct instructor, but mostly right now I'm a mom of five children. And that advice holds true in what, whatever place I am. You're listening to a conversation in good faith with a group of listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Father Libambu. Now back to the conversation. You know, several of us here are teachers and I've had kind of a gradual conversion in the course of my career from teaching material to teaching students. And even more than just teaching students, being taught by them and having it be a kind of conversation and a discovery process together. And I think teaching, if it's properly understood, is one of, I guess, the vocations all human beings have as we learn to interact with each other. I loved what you also said, Selena, like Father Labambu, it it is a gradual, cumulative experience, this faith journey that we're on. 
And many times, as I love the description in, in Scripture where it says it's like the dew of heaven distilling upon us, you know, as it, as it slowly comes upon it. And before we know it, we are a disciple. We, we have that conversion. And I also thought when you said that there's a, there's a wonderful thought that comes from Africa that many people repeat once they've been there. Bruce, you may have felt like this after your experience, but the thought simply says this. I'm an African, not because I was born in Africa, but because Africa was born in me. And that's what happens often to people who are there. And I think it's the same thing in our faith tradition. You know, we, we are not necessarily born this way, but our faith, those seminal feelings that seem to spark because of experiences like Father Labambu described, seem to, to well up within us. And it, it, for most of us, and it was certainly for me, as you said, Selena, a cumulative experience rather than that epiphanal moment. There's an element in uh, Father Labambu's conversion story that maybe didn't come out as strongly here as it, it might have, and that was the influence of his mother. He does mention her, and you know, having talked with him outside of this interview, I, I felt that that is somewhere at the core of who he is. You know, we sometimes talk about Mother Africa, or Africans sometimes talk about that. There is a very powerful influence that I think mothers have in, in African culture, and that that's one of the ways that a sense of God's love comes into into people's hearts. Such a good point, Bruce. You know, our in my faith, we're taught a lot that our mothers have a nurturing responsibility, and I really believe that. In my case, it was my mother who really helped sort of spur those feelings and and see that. And he didn't mention much about his father. You may know more about his personal situation, but it is such a tough situation in Africa where it's pretty much a lack of fathers that are really one of the the real issues and problems that are affecting Africans. And so it redoubles the impact of mothers who, boy, they, let's, let's pay tribute where it's due. It is, it is mothers who are really doing that, whether they have subscribed that themselves or they've just been forced into that situation. And I think we would love, of course, for the role of, of fathers to be stronger there. And there are several reasons why that maybe is not always the case. Part of it is the poverty and the fact that, you know, responsible fathers are often having to do so much simply for the survival of their family that they're not able to be as maybe present as they would be otherwise. And the other is the conflict, the warfare, and so on that afflicts so many that that, of course, pulls fathers away. You know, that conflict is is interesting to hear him talk about that because in the interview, Steve had just mentioned to him that that might be one of the things sort of impairing the development of Christianity. And believe it or not, it's very surprising. In places like the DRC, there's a lot of xenophobia. There's a lot of very, very, uh, we talk about tribalists being tribalistic in North America. It is rampant there, and it's really unfortunate because I think it limits a lot of the opportunities to be a, a two-commandment person such as uh, Father Labambu and, and really see that love of neighbors uh, and love of God is important. It, it, it actually stifles it. And uh, to see him emerge from that so strong, so resilient is, is just amazing. It seems to me that that context is probably why he can't afford to waste a breath on anything that isn't essential <laughs> when it comes down to it. I, I think his insight about our ability to build community is entirely dependent on values like reconciliation and there's no development without peace that cuts right to the heart of it. It takes mm-hmm. people who can set aside the conflict in the spirit of, of acting on those two commandments. 
We've talked several times about what is essential, and maybe we've already covered this in some ways, but I'm just, I'd just like to throw out the question, what, what do each of you think is most essential? I'll respond to that. I, that's been on my mind a lot in a conversation like this with Father Labamba's sort of nurturing that uh, in my imagination. I feel like, like I said before, I feel like I have less patience for preaching without content <laughs> every day that I get older. And I feel like what is essential for me? Well, at that intersection of myself and belonging to a community, I want for myself to listen very carefully to find that best voice within me and act on the, will take the actions that lead me to be my best self, where I can make my highest and most useful contribution. And I feel like when I'm in that place and when I can model that sort of behavior for my children so they can learn how to become their best selves, then we're putting ourselves in the situation where we can become peacemakers and problem solvers in our communities and hopefully be part of the solution in our own way and in our own place that Father Lubambu was describing. That, that, to me, feels like the essential intersection. We were talking about community requires values. And one of the things I think is interesting is that I become more explicit about what those values are as a mom, right? And as a teacher, too. I just lay it out there. In our family... We use kind words and voices. <laughs> In our family, we have soft hands and feet. Can you tell that I have some small children? <laughs> Hopefully they'll, well, they'll probably still be on each other <laughs> when they're teenagers, right? Um, but I believe strongly in our family, we use kind words. We are different, but we use kind words. I mean, I feel very strongly about this on many levels, not not about toys. And so I think it's interesting to me how values are core, but they are how we get along and how we learn to respect people who are different than we are, whether it's within a family or a classroom. We have little kids at home, too, and we, we spend a lot of time trying to bring minor conflicts back to indisputable truths under our roof. And one of those is people aren't for hurting. Oh, that's another way to say it. Yes. <laughs> people aren't for hurting. And it's funny how my wife and I look at each other and say, gosh, if all of us could just get back down to that simple truth all the time. It's so deep. You know, we'd, we'd, be, we'd be those two commandment people. Turns out that people are for loving and neighbors are loving, right? It, that's great philosophy. <laughs> You know, I, I, I think his discussion of you, how did he put it, uh, there's no way to build a community without values. He was very clearly alluding not, not just to values, but to Christian values. And he talked about forgiveness, and it made me think about forgiveness and, and reconciliation. Earlier we were talking about the unfortunate uh, xenophobia that exists on the African continent. You know, having lived in South Africa for three years, I was able to see just a little bit of this. And, of course, there it's a little bit different because uh, due to apartheid, you had a, a white community that was very suppressive of, of the black community. And yet, typical of Father Labambu with the Africans, you, you see this spirit of reconciliation. I, re I remember I was in a congregation of one of our churches that was about half black and half white. And I was sitting towards the front, and as I looked out in the congregation, speaking of young children and mothers, 
I saw a young black mother with uh, three children, probably ages uh, six, five, and two, and she was struggling trying to maintain some order on her pew while still trying to pay attention to the sermon and not be disruptive of others. Down the pew on the other side was an elderly Afrikaner woman, a white woman, who I think years ago probably would have looked at this scene and looked down her nose and just thought, you know, why can't this woman control her children? But instead, and as I observed on that that beautiful uh, morning of reconciliation, I will call it, I, I saw this white woman look down the row, look down the pew and see the situation and of her own volition slid down the pew took the youngest child who was causing the most problem, picked her up in this loving embrace, this white woman embracing this black child. And with just a, that, that way that we communicate, especially women, I see this, just a wink and a nod, like, I've got this, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of this. And sure enough, the situation was resolved and peace came to that little pew on that, on that morning. And it just occurred to me that years earlier, that would have been a very contentious, almost like not even allowed in the same church, and yet it was it was happening. And I think for for Africa to move ahead, certainly in South Africa and the DRC and elsewhere, that's the spirit. That's the that's that value of forgiveness that was really taught to me on that morning, and that is just so so important for all of us. If you think about it, if we could, and you were you were alluding to this earlier. Uh, both of you, Andrew and Selena, if we could just live that value of, of forgiveness, reconciliation, tolerance, love, respect, you know, the, the, those core sort of Christian values, wouldn't this world be a different place? Wouldn't faith be something much more abundant? Yeah, a favorite quip of mine is by the longshoreman philosopher Eric Hoffer, and he said mm-hmm. that compassion is the antitoxin of the soul. Mm-hmm. And it seems like whenever... Whenever you see that contention boiling up, there's there's that toxin. There's that toxin, and you can't remove it without forgiveness, without compassion. But those those are powerful antitoxins. A compassion cleanse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, and especially to Father Michel Libambu for sharing his stories and his faith. Since this interview took place, Father Libambu has been appointed to a position in the Vatican. He now works there as an official of the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. We hope you found value in today's conversation and we welcome your thoughts and ideas about the program. Reach out to us anytime via email at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Find our shows archived online for listening or sharing at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith or subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced with help from Marcus Smith. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join with us again soon right here in Good Faith.